Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. mostly on the technique of sitting and how to have a descending pubic bone and deep groins and buoyant chest and uh, and then this afternoon I thought we would just sit and walk and just kind of get a feeling for the technique and I don't know about you but sometimes once we've started after half a day passes I, I'm just ready to go for five or six days you know. Um, for any of you who've been on retreat you probably know that it takes about three days just to get quiet and then you know once you pass the three day mark it's like fasting's a little like that too first couple days are just you know the hell realm Um, and the hell realm is also really good to feel because uh, one of the things this practice does is it's a mirror and it really shows us where we're at. And usually we get a little hint of where we're at. Like not where we think we're at, but actually where we're at. And we just want to run away, you know. And that's natural. Um, so I thought that uh, I would end today just talking a little bit about uh, the experience of meditation and how it can be integrated in your life. And then we could end with a little discussion, and then say goodbye. Does that sound reasonable? Yeah. Um, so, so first of all, let me say that uh, just uh, being at the front of the room and observing today, uh, you're a great beginners group. And uh, I was amazed, because I know many of you don't know the form so well, and how quickly you picked it up, or some of you have forgotten it. You know. um, One monk tried to describe meditation in his life, and he he wrote, um, I don't know what it is, but gratitude overcomes me until I'm reduced to tears. This is my favorite description of meditation. I don't know what it is. Have you thought about that today? It's like you sit, and something kind of beautiful is happening. I don't, I don't know what it is. <laughs> I don't know what it is, but gratitude overcomes me until I'm reduced to tears. So, um, the byproduct of this practice is gratitude 
and appreciation, which just arises naturally, I think, when we're not so self-centered. Um, here's what uh, Sagyo writes about his practice. Uh, I was this this poem I, I thought about uh, last weekend because I, I just came home from Portland and in Portland there are cherry blossoms everywhere, mm-hmm. everywhere you go, just like pink snow, mm-hmm. wherever you go. And uh, Sagyo writes, "I would die in the spring under the blossoms in the second month at the time of the full moon." Have you ever had this this feeling? You look at the cherry blossoms and you say, I I would die now. You've been so satisfied? I I would die in the spring under these blossoms. And then he dates it, you know, and it's the second month. It's not a kind of prediction, like, I will die in the second month. No, now it's the second month and it's spring and I would die under these, these blossoms. Isa also wrote a poem about cherry blossoms. He said, um, Under the shade of cherry blossoms, nobody is a stranger. Another translation is, Under the cherry blossoms, there is no such thing as a stranger. Isn't that beautiful? I don't know if any of you have been to Japan, but uh, you maybe have seen images of the Japanese with their little boxes and their sake hanging out under the Mm -hmm. cherry blossoms. We do it in High Park uh, every spring, too. And um, you go, it's nice to go to High Park in the spring. The other good cherry blossom scene is at Robart's Library, but it's not as nice to sit in front of that mm-hmm. concrete swan. You know, uh, that I've heard recently is sinking one centimeter a year. Which I thought was really great. <laughs> All those books. You know. Anyways, um... Uh, under the shade of a cherry blossom tree, and no one's a stranger. Not because you're drunk on sake. Um, that helps. But uh, in under the umbrella of beauty, nobody's a stranger. Um, I said at one point during the walking meditation, you know, to be aware that everybody in the room is you. Like to let go of this kind of like retreat back into oneself. So I mention these poems, these lines, because I think these are ways people have expressed this practice through art. Because it's hard to say it in words. You know, you'll go home tonight and they'll say, so how is the workshop? (laughs) And if it's someone who doesn't practice, they'll be like, so how is the workshop? (laughs) You know? And um, I always think, you know, if someone asks you how it was, uh, not not to say, unless they're really listening. Because it, it can be kind of painful, you know, if someone asks you how it was. It's so uh, tender, this practice, and quiet. And you may not even realize yet how slowed down you are until you leave here today. Unless you notice that at lunchtime. You know. Um... I wanted to uh, work with just a very short teaching. Uh, This is from a a wonderful collection of stories called the Blue Cliff Record. And uh, this is the the third case in the Blue uh, Cliff Record. And 
is a really short, short koan, and I thought we could uh, just use it to see how this relates, how this practice connects with your daily life. So uh, listen carefully. Uh, Great Master Ma was unwell. The temple superintendent came and asked him, Teacher, how has your health been in recent days? Great Master Ma responded, Sun face Buddha, moon face Buddha. That's the whole story. We have to break it down a little bit to get the, the feeling. Um, so uh, you, you, you might need to know a few things about the background here. Master Ma was famous as the most rigorous and strict and intense meditation teacher. So some of you might know of stories of how they uh, can teach meditation in East Asia with the teacher yelling at you and throwing you out of the hall and, you know, hitting you. And uh, I'm sure all of you have, have heard stories like this. And that reputation of that kind of teacher is from Master Ma. So here is this really intense teacher, and he's unwell. And he's not just unwell, he's really unwell. He's dying. And he's really sick. And um, if anybody has been with somebody who's dying, who has been uh, really a rigorous person, uh, you can see the tenderness and the fragility and vulnerability in their, in their life. So this, this is kind of the scene. Um, and... I think it's actually a bit of a joke, and I don't know if you picked up on it, but here's this master ma who's, who's dying, and this superintendent of the temple comes and says, how is your health <laughs> the past couple of days? <laughs> Could you imagine this? You go to visit someone you know who's dying, right? And you ask them, how is your health? <laughs> and you could say maybe he wasn't really asking about his health. He's really basically asking, like, how are you doing? Do you, do you know that sometimes with people, mm -hmm. you, there's like two ways of asking them how, how they are. You can say, how are you? Or you can say, you know, how are you? And they're not quite the same exactly. So the temple superintendent um, is asking this master, how is your health? So you should know two things. Uh, Sun-faced and moon-faced Buddha, um, in the footnote, it says that sun-face is the name of Buddha who lives for hundreds of kalpas. A kalpa is a glacial age. Okay, so this is somebody who lives for eons and eons. But a Buddha just means awake. To be awake for glacial ages. And sometimes when you're sitting, it feels like a glacial age. Has anyone, like, you hear the bell and the, like, the whole ice age just stops. <laughs> um, and a moon-faced Buddha is a Buddha who is awake for one second. Just like that. So, on the one hand, uh, sun-faced Buddha is this Buddha who is awake for long, long eons. Always awake. And the moon-faced Buddha is the Buddha who can only be awake for one second. 
Maybe you felt both today. Maybe you felt that part of you that only, like, momentarily comes out of the dream. Was it you who was? Yeah. For a moment, comes out of the dream. Oh, I'm awake. And then back into the dream again. <laughs> For another couple of years. <laughs> Till the next workshop. <laughs> yeah. And then you can also, I think, once in a while, when you're following your breath, realize that your, your, your awareness is like behind the scenes all the time. And that awareness seems to have nothing to do with time. Almost as if like awareness is one of the great natural resources. Just like water and soil and air. There's awareness. And it seems to just be here and is not personal. In fact, it's like this whole personal life is in front of awareness. And when we get settled, awareness is just kind of shining behind the scenes the whole time. You know? And um, Master Ma, who's really ill, is asked, how is he really doing? And he's saying, well, sometimes sun face Buddha, mm. sometimes moon face Buddha. It's so human, right? Sometimes uh, completely awake. And sometimes just momentarily awake. Maybe for you, there are times where you can be really awake in a sustained way. And then maybe there are times where uh, certain habits... Uh, who is talking about tiredness? You too, yeah. <laughs> tiredness? Uh, I'm sure it's just you. Yeah, really. Um, <laughs> Um, shows up and really it takes, it's just so hard to work with that habit. Mm -hmm. Or maybe for you, it's uh, something in the day. You can be really awake when you're working. You know, so I know people who have like high pressure jobs like surgery. And when you're performing surgery, you are awake and you have to be completely awake or you make mistakes. You know, uh, and sometimes the high pressure keeps you really awake. You know, just like when you sit here as a group, you might feel more awake than when you sit at home. Yeah. And then, this surgeon has also told me, and then when he eats, he, he just eats like really fast and like can't relax and has all kinds of digestive trouble um, and then has to drink a lot of coffee to kind of overcome the uh, uh, torpor from having to digest eating that way. And then gets into this whole, you know, uh, problem that we all can relate to, I think, in some ways, right? Um, so, when he's working, there's sun face Buddha and then moon face Buddha, back and forth. Does that make sense to you? Yeah. Uh, last week, we, during, on Tuesday night, during the Lotus Sutra talk, we talked about Dogen and Dogen's definition of enlightenment where he says, uh, enlightenment is to uh, be awake to your delusion. To be awake to delusion. Which is kind of a backwards way of thinking about what being awake is. Usually we think being awake is like to overcome delusion. The fellow who was sitting over there earlier this morning, he said, uh, 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 just, I just want my mind to be completely clear. And don't we all feel that, that way? Like, 
Jacqueline said it earlier too. Like, I just don't want to have thoughts. <laughs> so this is like, this is craving. Right? Craving no thought. And this creates suffering. Because then we can't be one with what we're actually experiencing right now. We need to be one with like some ideal that we've heard about. Um, if you meditate, it's better for you. Your heart rate settles. Your immune system will get stronger. Um, your life will have more meaning because the meaning will come from your life, not from you. And your uh, posture, your spine will literally uh, uh, be able to receive the breath more flexibly. Your hips will open. And actually, the sitting posture will totally improve your life. And um, this is a great, a great thing. Um, and at the same time, it will open you up to your life. And I think some of us don't really want that. <laughs> like, we'd rather get enlightened than get enlightened to our life. You know? And Dogen says, but what is enlightenment? It's being awake to your delusion. But don't you think that enlightenment is supposed to be like being awake to like bliss and peace and blue skies and like Southern California? Yeah. Or our idea of Southern California. If you've ever been to Southern California. <laughs> um, so actually... Um, Being awake to your delusion is kind of what we're doing in the practice, in some way. And then when you sit, what happens is you start to notice your delusions. But then you notice them, and so they don't have any power. They lose their, their purchase power on you. Because you're seeing them. Or seeing is seeing them. It's not really you that's seeing them. It's that the awareness that's behind you is seeing them through you. Uh, when I was young, I really liked the Grateful Dead. I, I thought they were really cool. Um, and um, they had this song that I used to really like called Eyes of the World. And the lyrics uh, go, wake up to find out that you are the eyes of the world. And I just thought this was the most brilliant, brilliant. They were written by, they actually didn't write their own songs. They had a, a, a guy who wrote songs for them named Robert Hunter who was best friends with Bob Dylan. And um, he wrote these words. Uh, Wake up. Isn't this kind of what Master Ma is saying? Wake up to realize that, that you are the eyes of the natural world. So we think like I'm looking, but what if you are just, if the natural world is just operating through your eyes, through your ears? So it's like I'm listening. But when you're sitting still, you realize maybe it's just the natural world listening through this vehicle. Does this make sense? And um, 
then we can start to see that if you just watch thoughts come and go, like we can hear sounds come and go, then it's no problem. And even your delusions are no problem, because maybe most of them are not even really your fault. Maybe you've been thinking that most of your trouble is just your fault, or your parents' fault. Sometimes I think the only reason why the Indians invented past life theory is just to get their parents off the hook. <laughs> like the parents invented it, so that the kids would stop blaming everything on the parents. They're like, well, why don't, uh, we're tired of all this, you know, people blaming us, so why don't we just invent this theory that you had past lives, and then we can be off the hook. And then so when our kids say, oh, you know, you caused so much harm in my life, you gave me bad self-esteem, and you were, you know, tortured me, and I hated my school, and so on, you just could say, well, this is just your past life uh, operating. This is your karma. <laughs> so anyways, that's my theory about past lives. I don't think they make any sense, but, you know, I think it's a good theory. And that's why the parents invented this. So Master Ma is unwell. He's really unwell. So one day, uh, you're going to be unwell. Or maybe uh, just throughout the day, there are times when you're unwell. Maybe sometimes we wake uh, up in the morning and we feel pretty good. And then as the day goes, as soon as we meet another human being, <laughs> we don't feel so good. <laughs> or maybe some people are their opposite. They wake up alone and they don't feel so good until they meet other human beings and then they feel good. Um, so it's not just being unwell, like, physically, at the end of your life. But actually, during your life, every day there are times where we don't feel so good. And then all we have to remember is sun-faced Buddha and moon-faced Buddha. That um, just being aware for one second is enough to remember that you can be aware for a glacial age. Or to remember that it's not you that's even aware. Right. This is a little bit of a hard thing to remember, but maybe it's what our practice reminds us of more than anything. Is that like, in a way, your practice is none of your business. Like, you're not even doing it. It's just going on under the surface. And it's just happening, even though you think you're doing it. So... See if you if you can really uh, feel that as a possibility. Just like the spring, you know. It's like well, it's not so spring today, is it? But you know, when you go outside and you see all those crocuses, and uh, as you can guess, I'm just I'm completely obsessed with cherry blossoms. If I was like more of like a tattoo kind of guy. I would just do cherry blossoms. Like, I would do, you know, maybe they'd be like falling, you know? They'd be like really dense up here. And they'd be like falling. You know? And actually the thing about cherry blossoms, they're so fleeting. Uh, they erupt really quickly. 
and then they dissolve really fast. And if you ever watch them, uh, they look awful when they hit the ground. They turn all brown, and then they disappear really quick. And um, uh, so they're good teachers. One 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 teacher said, one poet said, um, "If you want to really know death, then study cherry blossoms." If you really want to understand impermanence, then like really study cherry blossoms. Or we could even say, if you really want to know how your life works, then just sit still and you'll see impermanence. And then maybe this will force you to cling a little less. So when you start sitting, another thing that happens is all the reactivity has anybody noticed the reactivity? Yeah. In, in, in Pali, this is called papancha. I love this one. Can, can we say that out loud? Papancha. 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 Yeah, this sounds like punchy. Uh, papancha uh, literally means conceptual proliferation. I love this term. Conceptual proliferation. This means, remember I was giving examples of like hearing a sound and thinking and thinking. How, so as soon as you have a concept about something, to have a concept has concepts in it. This is how memory works. And then that concept proliferates another concept, which is proliferated by another concept. And then next thing you know, you have a life. But it's not really a life. It's just conceptual life. And it's a bit shallow because it's just conceptual and then um, that in your practice, even if your technique really sucks, that stuff just settles down naturally like cherry blossoms do. I wish you could actually watch how a tree lets go of a cherry blossom. Wouldn't that be amazing if you could just stay there and watch that moment? They hide this from humans, so we never get to see it. They'll only let it go when a human's not looking. And then you look, oh, and then it's dropped. And you're like waiting to see how they, exactly how they let go of a cherry blossom. And um, you would have to videotape it. But, you know, they hide it. They know the video. So if you could let go of your reactivity, just like the way a tree lets go of its blossoms, you know, to just like sit... And when something arises, just not to hold it. You know, not to hold it. And then um, what would happen is your thoughts, which are mostly made up of your reactivity, start to just settle, and eventually they stop coming. And maybe for periods of time, you'll experience the mind without any thinking. And then as soon as you notice it, then it, you wreck it. Because then you, you think how, about how you've just noticed how there's no thinking. And then you get... Uh, uh, Dogen calls it thinking, not thinking. How do you think not thinking? You think not thinking. Except that you can't think your way into not thinking. Philosophers do this all the time, right? They, they contemplate not thinking. <laughs> Do you do this ever? Yeah. yeah. So, what we're awake to is not not thinking. We're awake to thinking, which creates not thinking. 
about the thinking, which is papancha, the conceptual proliferation, which is not that thinking is bad, it's all the thinking about the thinking. You know? Has anyone done this before? Yeah, thinking about the thinking. So, um, this is, this is Master Ma. And, um, One other thought I had about Master Ma is that um, to contemplate what the difference is between you and Master Ma. He's this ancient Chinese character, Master Ma. And what's the difference between you and Master Ma? It's not that he's Chinese. It's that he realizes that the sun face is Buddha and the moon face is Buddha. He realizes that delusion is Buddha. You see, now when you come to sit, if you're stressed out, you think that stress is not Buddha. You think that stress is not sacred. But if you can let stress be sacred, then it's okay. And then it's not a problem. And that's the difference between us and Master Ma. He has a better name and you know, <laughs> um, so on. Uh, is that he realizes that the part of you that can sit for a moment and the part of you that can be here for glacial ages are both Buddha. And we don't tend to feel that way. Uh, we tend to think that the, the part of us that's not calm is really something we should get rid of. But actually, if you just really, 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 really fiercely accept that part of yourself that's kind of crazy, then it's not so crazy anymore. You know? Ajahn Chah, a Thai forest monk, used to say that, you know, it takes so many years to teach young people. But old people, you don't have to teach them so much because they're, they really know impermanence. Because their body is hurt. <laughs> yeah? It's maybe a big difference between men and women, you know? Like, men, you have to teach them so much philosophy, you know? And women, they're just like, you know, a little more in their body. I don't know if that's true, but you know, that's what people tell me. So I, I, I was trying to think, you know, how can you take Master Ma's teaching and bring it into your life? And so I'm just going to offer you a little bit of homework for how to work with Sun Face Buddha and Moon Face Buddha, which, wa- which is every moment that you remember to ask yourself in that moment, what do I expect? What do I expect? Uh, this is not a way to judge people. Like, so when your lover, you know, you get home and they did not make you even a snack. You don't kind of cross your arms and go, well, what did I expect? <laughs> your whole family lined up at the door, so happy to see you. <laughs> um, 
It's to notice what happens when your expectations don't meet reality. Reality is not going to change to meet your expectations. But you can change your expectations on reality. Maybe some of you expect your body isn't supposed to look like this. Does anybody get this when they look in the mirror? Like, I get this sometimes. I look in the mirror and I'm like, huh? You know, it doesn't sometimes look exactly like how you think it looks. Um, What do I expect? And then, if you notice that, that's an instant of Buddha. It's an instant of awareness. And then, hopefully, it can drop you back into a deeper awareness. Um... And what if you can always be aware that things happen and that to just try and control your whole life is to set up uh, a life uh, of suffering. Things will happen outside, in other words, of what you expect. Imagine if your life went along as expected. Some of you are saying, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Imagine if you married that kid in grade three who you wanted to marry. <laughs> Maybe you did. <laughs> and that's why you're here. So Master Ma is unwell, and he's asked, you know, how's your health? Maybe if one of you gets sick and uh, you're in pain, you you can call me, and and I'll come to the hospital, and I'll ask you, (laughs) how's your health? And you'll remember what I what I'm talking about. And then you can say, uh, in one moment, I'm really awake. And in another moment, um, I can't be awake. But then in that moment that you can be awake, you know you can be fully awake. So in a day like this, you get a little taste of how you can meet your life from stillness. And just because you've planted that seed, you'll remember that always now for the rest of your life. It's like quitting smoking, you know? If you can go for a day without smoking, you can go, you can quit smoking. (coughs) It's not true with French fries. (laughs) I don't know why. Go for a day without french fries. Still want french fries. (laughs) I don't know. So, um, I'm going to stop there, even though there's some more layers to this koan that I want to get into, but but we're not going to have time.
but I thought maybe we could just open it up for a few minutes before we finish. Um, I thought I'd start just by talking about how, how to develop a practice at home, and then we could just discuss a little bit. Okay? So, first of all, I want you to start practicing every day. Now, so to get a zabuton and a zafu like this, or a bench, um, if you don't have a zabuton, you know, get a really nice blanket that's gray or black and not distracting, and set up your, your cushion. Um, and um, if you have a family then or roommates, set it up in a place where everybody can see it, so it's not a secret. And um, this is really good if you have kids, you know, to let them see that you have this <coughs> this thing going on, this hobby. <laughs> and wake up early in the morning, because early in the morning, when you wake up, your mind is clear, but your body's really stiff. And in the evening, your body is usually a little loose, and your mind is really loose. So it's good to sit in the morning when you wake up. Um, set uh, <coughs> your gaze forward as we've explored, or if your eyelids are closed, to keep the eyeballs really low so that your eyeballs are not moving around. And then set a timer where you can't see it. For uh, Today we've been sitting 25 minutes, pretty much, in our sits. So you can set a timer for 20 or 25 minutes. And uh, you can get a nice timer like this. This was a gift someone gave me. I just love it. It's called an Enso timer. Um, but you can also download them for free on your iPhone or whatever. And you set a timer up. Don't use your, like, radio clock, <laughs> you know. You should have a nice bell at the end. Where you can't see it for 20 or 25 minutes. And trust completely, have complete shraddha or faith in the timer. And then sit and follow your breathing and let sounds come and go until the bell rings. So you stand up, bow, turn around, bow, sit down, bell rings, you bow, you get up, and then you do your day. Okay? And you have complete trust in the container, which is the timer. So if some days it goes quickly, it goes quickly. And in some days, uh, some agitation or impatience arises, you don't get up. So the thing about the timer is it's going to hold you, it's going to hold you in whatever you're experiencing. Um, so that you don't go to escape what you're experiencing. Okay? So you don't just kind of sit for as long as feels good. Oh, it doesn't feel good anymore. I'm going to get up. Then you look at the clock. Three minutes. <laughs> <laughs> or you sit and it's like, I know what could feel even better, you know? <laughs> and then you, you know, go turn the espresso machine on or whatever. So um, this way you get to learn how to work with all the different habits that can show up in your life that maybe you wouldn't work with unless you were still, or sometimes wouldn't even show up. Boredom, you know, boredom. So um, this is how you develop a practice. And if you do this every day 
for three weeks from now, then uh, you can email me if you have any questions, and I'll, I will uh, respond. And if you email me, just make sure that the email is only about three sentences. So if I have to scroll, I won't read it. <laughs> okay? So make sure they're anti-scroll emails. <laughs> and um, you can, you can uh, ask me questions, and I'll, I'll, I'll certainly uh, support you. Because I want you to sit every day without holidays, no matter what. And then you can really... Uh, uh, put that time in and start to see how this affects your uh, your day-to-day life. Because meditation is a little bit unlike some religious practices because it's not so mystical and it's not really so holy. It's just so damn practical. You actually develop skill, just like learning how to play piano or something. Yeah? So I'm just curious how... How important and how simplistic or whatever uh, can you make or do you need an altar or something that sort of no place to sit in front no. of not the candle thing nothing no incense no you don't need it but no just get your ass there it's nice to add to the ritual <laughs> yeah you can do that over time if you want but right now I don't want to add anything to it because I just want it to be really this is brown rice practice. It's like so simple, not a lot of flavor. It's really, really good. Okay, so I'd like to hear from you. Who is worried? Who is excited? Who is confused? Who is deluded? Jack. I'm deluded. Uh, you know, I've, I've done this so many times. It reminds me of when I used to quit smoking so many times. Um, but. For me, one of the problems I've had is I've always attached my asana practice to my sitting practice. Uh-huh. And then it just got so cumbersome and so lengthy that I didn't have time for it. Yeah. Okay. And yeah. I would just not, so dividing it up is better. Correct? Yeah. I mean, I'm just stating the obvious. Well, I think they should be really separated. Yeah. <coughs> yeah. I... I, I I like to practice asana like around 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And I like to sit in the morning. But, you know, you, you can experiment with what works for you. For, I mean, it's really good to practice early in the morning asana if you're like in India. Because when it gets so, or Costa Rica. When it's you know? hot. It's, yeah, it's so hot. But, but actually, you know, most of us, our bodies are like pretty limber uh, in the afternoon. Um, so, uh, it just depends on your schedule, you know, I, I've got a son, so I can't, like, have such a strict schedule, so I just kind of have to, like, see where I have time, uh, but I really encourage you to do your sitting in the morning, so it's there for you during the day. Also, uh, a good sitting practice tends to, uh, give you energy, so, uh, I think if you're starting out a practice, it's not so good to sit before you go to bed. Uh, because actually it can uh, give you energy. Um, so, yeah. How do you incorporate uh, walking meditation into your life? Um, like how do you suggest that it's a tool? 
Well, there are different ways. It depends on the person. You know, I don't practice formal walking during the day, uh, but some people do. I was telling you about a surgeon that I work with. So he, so he was convinced he could not practice at work. So I went with him to work, um, partly because I wanted to see surgery. Um, but he has an office down the hall from the operating room. And the hallway is maybe like three times as long as this. And it's pretty private. Like there's just other offices on the hallway. There's no one rushing around in the hallway. So uh, he, he literally he opens his door to his office and looks at the door of the surgery room. So he's all dressed, you know, in this funny outfit and his robes. And he opens the door and he bows. And he does walking meditation to the surgery room. And then after surgery, which is usually when he's most kind of fried, then he does slow walking back to his office. And he describes that like he sits down and he returns emails better. His mm -hmm. office is way more uh, organized. Um, and he makes fewer mistakes. Fewer? Fewer. <laughs> well, you know, surgeons make mistakes. And um, so uh, I work with a teacher. So she uh, goes to school early, and even though the janitor has cleaned the floor, she goes in and she sweeps the floor. And the instruction I give her is every time you sweep the floor, to imagine you're sweeping your mind. And so she does it with her breathing. So inhale, exhale. Inhale, exhale. Right? Just like this is her walking. And then when the students start coming in, she looks at each person and says good morning to them. But she used to go in, and she's like photocopying stuff, spilling coffee. The kids are a pain in the ass because they're coming in. She's not quite ready. So here she comes in, and she sweeps her whole nervous system. It's called Nadi Shodna, you know, the sweeping of the nerves. And then the kids come in, and she greets them. It's very beautiful. So there's creative ways you can do it. Um, is there a gardening version? What's that? Is there a gardening version? I mean, you can turn anything into a practice. Uh, somebody in the precepts course that we just taught really found it hard to, to, to bring the practice into their life. So I had her working with her bicycle lock. So she uh, uh, puts the key in the lock, turns it, opens it, puts it around her bike without hitting anything. So just like trying to put the lock around the bike without touching anything, closing it, putting the key in. And she has to do this like 20 times a day. So 20 times, she just slows down, oh, nice. and she uses this as a, as a practice. Oh, so it's not necessarily like you have, it's a walking meditation practice. But taking well, I'm saying it depends on your life. life. Yeah, it depends on your life. Being aware of the actions, maybe yeah. I'm pouring the coffee or yeah. as you eat. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Um, one of my teachers, Enkyo Roshi, she says, you know, a good way to practice walking meditation is, you know, once a week in the city, go for a walk without a destination. So have like an hour and just enjoy walking without having any idea. And for those of you who live in a city, this is kind of hard because actually we know the good routes or the routes we like or certain alleys or whatever. Um, and uh, this can be walking. Um, you can try that out. Or, you know, if you want, you can also do the penetration that we just did, the walking that we just did. We played yeah. outside uh, 
In the winter. Yeah. After the, the meditation. Yeah. Good. Wherever you can do it. Usually walking is what you do between periods of sitting meditation okay. when you do it formally like that. Mm-hmm. So if you're going to do two periods of sitting, just put a period of walking in between. Okay. Yeah. And the cool thing about walking, you might notice, is like you have, you have energy for sit. As soon as you sit down, it's like, mm-hmm. wow, you didn't even do so much. Especially for those of you who are yogis who think you need, you know, an hour between sits of like putting your feet behind your head and everything. Just walking and then sit down, you've got energy. Yeah? What is the difference between um, taking 20 minutes shavasana and 20 minutes of sitting meditation? Uh, vertical spine. Vertical eagle. Ego. Um, well, in shavasana, the tendency is just to kind of lie down and sort of relax. Um, and is more conducive for daydreaming. So when we sit, we want the, verti- the, the spine to be completely vertical and to feel that you have energy, vitality, and wakefulness. Um, shavasana is a totally separate practice, which is traditionally taught as a practice for dying. Practicing dying. Literally, it's trying to be a corpse. Which isn't exactly what we're doing when we're sitting. We're practicing living. Yes. Semantic question, I guess. What would be the difference between the awareness that you talk about and insight? Like, how how are they different or or similar? Well, the the word insight is an English translation of the Sanskrit word vipassana. A pasha is an I, and V means to go in. Literally means to, to look deeply into something. So what it refers to is uh, when you practice with your breathing and your attention settles, which is called shamatha, which is calmness, then in that space that's created, you start to see things. You get insight into the nature of your life. Like, for example, impermanence or that nothing really belongs to you. Um, And these insights are the benefit of the meditation practice. Because when the insights start to add up, you get wisdom. You get compassion. So uh, at the beginning, we're really smart and clever. And then when you start to sit, you really start looking at impermanence and your life in a deeper way than just knowing about it or having ideas about it. So we give that a different name than knowledge, and we call it insight, which is literally like going in and looking clearly. So then is that the same as awareness? Because the sense I get about awareness is that it's no, I wouldn't say like it's very the same. primitive. It's almost awareness is a... a a level of consciousness that hasn't been tampered with, that, that yeah. is very pure. Yeah. So you can look at things without any bias. Sure, and then in that, in that, it shows you little lessons that we call insight. Mm-hmm. And actually there are mapped out stages of insight, which are kind of universal in a way. Yeah. So. so like on retreat during interviews, that's often what I'm like, aware of behind the scenes with students. It's like, 
the insight that's arising. But we'll get to that next workshop. Mm -hmm. I'm curious, and I'm not sure exactly what my question is, but maybe if you can comment on it. What is, I know there's a difference, but do you ever bring visualization into meditation, or like in terms of um, uh, like transition, wealth often tries to visualize what kind of future they want, like, mm -hmm. and they try to actually see it and uh, pretend it's a reality, like mm -hmm. to hopefully make it a reality. Mm -hmm. So I don't know, like, do you. Can you incorporate that kind of thing into the mm -hmm. meditation? Well, yeah. 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 But it, it feels like it's like a, not a clearing, but um, meditation in itself is just like observe, observing what's there. Whereas yeah. visualization is trying to like see something that's not there yet. Yeah. So is it the... Yeah. Do you do, you do that? Yeah. No. Well, I mean, I wouldn't mix and match techniques. Okay. Yeah. Um, so there's a time for visualization, there's a time for mantra, there's a time for all these things, yeah. and that's not what we're doing today. Okay, yeah, so right. it's, it, they're separate. Yeah. yeah, and they all work, yeah. okay. which is the best part. Yeah. Um, but uh, the practice we're doing is just simply cultivating awareness. Okay. And um, I wouldn't even say cultivating awareness. Mm -hmm. I'd actually say, you know, cultivating the conditions for us to realize awareness could be one way of saying it. Um, and then, you know, with some students, we'll add things like maybe there's a time for visualization. Mm -hmm. But uh, if you already have other techniques, I wouldn't mix them. Yeah. Just like the asana practice, you know, like I, I would kind of keep them separate until you kind of go deep in each one. Mm -hmm. And then you'll start to see how they're interconnected. So, last comment, and then we'll. Well, what happens if you're interested in uh, looking deeper into the like, memory surfaces? Yeah. An incident that happened, you yeah. know, you want to look at it deeper. Uh -huh. um, so you want to sort of deconstruct it and yeah. look at certain features. Mm -hmm. And I keep wondering, well, what should I be looking at? Because there are different layers to this, you know, yeah. psychological So you, so let's say I'm sitting, and then there's calmness, you know, and there's space, you know, and then like a memory comes, or maybe you hear like a sound, or like a smell comes in, and it remi reminds you of something, and it's significant, you know, um, and then uh, a feeling and a memory are there, and then if there's calmness. You can let that become the object of meditation. It's like, oh, what's this about? Only you know? if there's equanimity. Equanimity and yeah. spaciousness. If something comes in and it like is really overwhelming, then you leave it and you come back to your breathing. Mm -hmm. Because if you go into it from that piece, you'll just be analyzing <coughs> and kind of like figuring it out and the same thing you always do, right? But here it's like we're mm -hmm. kind of allowing that to be there. Mm 
And that's why to be, you know, not to use this idea of trying to get rid of stuff. But actually, when something's there that's significant, and you know when it is. You know, um, when I was in Portland, it was Mother's Day. So we did like a meditation on, on moms. You know? And there are people in the room who don't know who their mom is. So it's a really significant day. It's like they don't know who their mom is. Or maybe uh, a couple people, their mom's really elderly and just about to die. And they came to the workshop actually in between spending time with their mom who's dying. So for all of us, Mother's Day can be a big, you know, or uh, feeling love for your mom. For me, when I meditated on my mom on Mother's Day, I just really wanted to go see her, you know. But I was in Portland, you know. Um, So to be aware when something's triggered and to allow space for it. And this is a lot easier to talk about than actually to do. And the key is, is that if you're going into something and you're caught and you're contracting and you're starting to storytell a lot, then there's no space. Because there are certain key questions that you need to ask. Yeah. And, you know, that would be depending on the person. <clears throat> and that's what we call investigation and insight. And there's kind of an order, usually, of how you investigate something. So, But it's different for different people. But I think to start, just being able to notice something with lots of space. Or you could say it's equanimity. Okay, so uh, I think that was probably about an hour. Yep. So, great. What a, what a nice day.